0: To be with you again today, and and I'm anxious to get into our series again. We started a new series last Sunday called Heaven There's No Place Like Home. And I want to do the second installment of that today. And today I want to talk specifically on the subject Is it real? We love the idea of heaven, it's an amazing concept, but is it real? I've never been to heaven, I don't have any proof that it's real. Um, So how do we know that this belief that we have is not just a a myth or a pipe dream? How do we know? Um, My parents were together probably 46 years, I think, um, before my dad died um, unexpectedly a couple of years ago, almost a couple years ago. I think this is our second Christmas without him. And my parents never should have made it. There was no possible way that they were ever going to make it. My mom was 17 when they met and there was so much dysfunction in her upbringing that they could write a book about it. There were five dads that cycled through the house, none of them her father. She never actually even met her dad. When they met, she was 17, he was a lost Vietnam veteran. He was six years older and he had his own crazy story and they met in a tree, They met in the branches of a tree at Laguna Beach. It's so crazy. It's super weird, but kind of romantic. Um, They grew up in Rosemead, but they loved Laguna Beach. And their first interaction was literally in the branches of a tree. And from the time they met, they were together. Uh, My mom had me when she was very young. She had just turned 19 when she had me. And got a little picture of our little trio there. They, they moved from Southern California to Eastern Washington, North Idaho. I'm the one in the middle, by the way, but um, <laughs> when, when I was just two. And they had no money, they had no plan, they had no post-high school education, and there's not a marriage counselor in the country that would have given them any chance at succeeding. But something happened when they got to Eastern Washington and the North Idaho region Um, My mother was raised for a lot of years when she was young by her grandmother, and her grandmother took her to church. Her grandmother introduced her to Jesus and built that strongly into the foundation of her life, and my dad, even though he had a life that took him very far away from faith in God, my dad, when he was a young man, went to the altar at a Billy Graham crusade and opened his heart to God and asked God to have his way in his life. And even though life took him a lot of different directions, that was there in his foundation and in his his formation. And when they got to the Pacific Northwest, they recommitted their lives to God. The faith that was in their their root structure and their foundation blossomed, and and they surrendered their lives to God. And it made a tremendous difference in their lives. Um, When I was two, I got very, very sick. And they admitted me to a hospital in Newport, Washington, which is this little tiny town on the Ponderé River where I ended up growing up, and an older nurse who was taking care of me and had met my mom was a pastor's wife. So a couple of days later, this elderly gentleman in a three-piece suit named Pastor Millard Bedwell knocked on my parents' door with a bag full of, an arm full of groceries, and he said, I heard some Christians live here, and they might need some help. And my parents started attending his church, he ended up baptizing them, and then he eventually introduced them to a different church that he thought might be a better fit for them. My parents were kind of ex-hippie types, and he introduced them to a Bible study that was made up of almost exclusively hippies from Southern California. They were trying to get out of California and find a new life in the Northwest, They show up at the first Bible study, the pastor's sitting cross-legged on the floor, no shirt, and hair down to his back. So my, my parents fit right in. This little Bible study grew into a church that was eventually called the House of the Lord. And the House of the Lord grew into what is probably the most influential, most powerful congregation in the county they eventually opened a school called House of the Lord Christian Academy. And I attended that school from first grade through 10th grade. And from my earliest memories, I've been taught about God and heaven. And the idea of heaven and eternity played a, a significant role in my upbringing. Our preachers talked about it. When people died, we tried to comfort them with promises about it. In fact, I had a friend uh, in junior high who passed away. His name was Robert Bunch, and he had a lot of health problems. He was in a wheelchair, and I wrote a poem for his memorial. I still remember it. Um, I won't do the whole poem, but it was called, I am running, bound onto a chair with wheels all day long. The angels forever will sing his song. (laughs) And, and, And when we would urge people to consider following Jesus, we did so based on this idea of heaven, if you respond to Jesus, then heaven can be yours. We would quote John 3:16 where it says, "For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life." So we would appeal to people that you have two options, you can perish or experience life. When I went to Bible college and met Jessica and was an up-and-coming pastor and Bible student. We studied the idea of heaven. And then when our first daughter, Alexis, died at three years old, we clung to the idea of heaven. We desperately clung to that idea. But, but, but is it real? I mean, it's an amazing concept. I mean, who wouldn't want the idea of paradise and eternity in a place where your tears are dried and and everything is made right and everything is beautiful? Who wouldn't want that idea? It's an incredible idea. But how do we know if it's real? How do we know if it's true? Um, I, I want it to be real. I hope it's real. But as I said, I've never been there. Now, the Apostle Paul claimed to have been there he claimed to have been there and come back and so he said that he had some evidence we'll look at his words in a few minutes but but the, i don't have that story there are some people who claim to have had visions of heaven or had a near death experience and they encountered god and they came back but 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 how do we know how do we have any proof i know there are some people that say well of course i believe in heaven because it's in the bible and since it's in the bible i believe it and if that's you today that's commendable but there was still a moment in your life where you had to decide if you believed what was in the Bible. See, I grew up with this stuff, but I still had to come to a point where intellectually I had to decide if I believed that this stuff was actually real. And then after I believed it and was living it, we've lived through enough painful stuff in our life that I had to re-up a few times. Do I still believe this is real? I I believed it back when everything was good, but do I still believe that this stuff Is legit. This morning, what I would like to do is very simple. I would like to try and make a very simple case for the legitimacy of heaven. Now, last Sunday was a little more motivational and inspirational and theological. And if you missed last Sunday, please jump on our podcast and tune into that opening message. I talked from the scriptures last week about how heaven puts a period on our greatest trials. And heaven tells us the score in advance. So I think if you tune into that, it'll be very life-giving and affirming for you. But today, I want to to make a little case to, to let you know that you're not crazy to believe in the idea of heaven. We're living in a time where everything around us is becoming increasingly suspicious and even hostile toward the idea of anything supernatural, but you are not crazy for believing in heaven. And what I want to do is present kind of a little four-legged stool to support the belief in the legitimacy of heaven. Because once we can intellectually believe in it and responsibly and rationally um, believe in it, then we get to experience the hope and the peace and the affirmation and the joy that heaven as a concept brings to us. So I have four simple arguments today. Um, uh, First is the anthropological argument. Second is the evidential argument. This won't be quite as boring as it sounds. The third is the existential argument. And then the fourth argument, which is more, most powerful by far, is the scriptural argument. So we'll get to scripture in, in a bit, but it's going to take me a few minutes to get there. But first of all, the anthropological evidence. Anthropology is, of course, the study of humanity, It's the study of human civilizations and how society forms and how humanity progresses. And anthropological evidence suggests that every major civilization all throughout human history has had some form of a belief in the afterlife. It wasn't just Christians with the Bible that made this up. All throughout human history, every major civilization has had some form of a belief. Now, it varies from people to people. The ancient Egyptians used to place a map beside the coffin of their embalmed loved ones because when you show up in the afterlife, you're going to need to find your way around. Uh, the, The Roman philosopher Seneca said, The day that you fear as your last is actually the birthday of eternity. Australian Aborigines believed that heaven was an island beyond the western horizon. Ancient Peruvians and Polynesians believed that you went to the sun or the moon when you died. Native Americans believed that their spirits in the afterlife would hunt the spirits of buffalo forever. And, And I could go on and on because every major people group has had some kind of a belief in heaven. And listen, that means something. It means something that the massive uh, majority of humanity has had a shared belief. It doesn't mean the belief is true. Just because the majority of humans believe this doesn't mean it's true, but it does at least prompt the question, why? Why from our earliest recorded history have we humans had a belief in something more? We, we might all be wrong, but since we have the belief, we have to ask why. Is it simply the latest um, phase of our evolving as a species that could be an answer or or is it a primitive worldview that's still kind of rattling around inside us from our ancestors that that could be an option or is it speaking to something deep and core and spiritual and foundational to what it means to be humans um let me throw out two quick cautions when you start doing anthropological stuff and historical stuff, there, there are two extremes we need to avoid. When we are critiquing ancient worldviews and, and historical perspectives, we have to be careful of both the, something that we call the God of the gaps, and we have to be careful of the arrogance that we have today in our Western academia. So the God of the gaps is this idea that every time we don't understand something as a people, we attribute it to God. Every time something happens, and science can't make sense of this, it's super mysterious. It must be God. And it makes sense to say that, but the problem with the God of the gaps is sometimes in history, things that we thought were God were just natural and we didn't understand it. You know, I, I did a little dance and and it rained. So it must be God. And there must be a connection. Well, no, not necessarily. The the problem with the God of the gaps is that as science explains more and more, that God continues to shrink. But on the other hand, we have to be careful because there is absolutely an arrogance today in our Western educated academia that believes that we have figured everything out. We have answered all the questions, and, and if we haven't, just give us a little more time, because given enough time, we will figure it out. There is no question that that, it's not just confidence, it's, it's, it's an arrogance. That we humans are going to figure out everything that can be figured out. Uh, and, and so anybody who went before us, they just didn't have all the facts. Now granted, of course, our technology is vastly superior to anything that it's ever been, of course. We have more understanding than people have ever had. But listen, just because a people group was ancient does not mean that they were stupid. Just because someone didn't have our technology doesn't mean that they didn't have understanding. We Westerners have a lot to learn from other places and other eras. So when I've gotten to travel a little bit, Every single time I've gone to another culture, especially the poorer places, I see something in the culture, in the relationships that we lack and that we could benefit from here. Every single time I've traveled, I've come home thinking, man, they understand something that we've lost in our affluence and in our busyness and in our pace. And yet, you know what? I don't think we consciously try to be arrogant, but I bet there's not one mildly affluent person in L.A. County today who is thinking, I should really go to a poor city in Mexico or Cambodia or Tanzania to learn how to do relationships better or to learn how to do community better. We're we're not trying to be arrogant. We just think we have it figured out. We just don't think that other people have as much to offer us. Listen, all throughout human history, in all parts of the world, people had a belief in an unseen realm. People believed in angels. People believed in demons. People believed in supernatural encounters. People believed in an afterlife. Now, that's not all Christians, by the way. It's people from every religious stream claims these encounters. And some are for good and some are are, are evil. But um, all of it might be false. But the point right now, is that it's not crazy to believe this stuff. Anthropologically speaking, people have always believed. And some people think that's because of what the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, where it says that God has set eternity inside the human heart, which would mean that if God is real, God created us with a longing for home. It's almost like a homing device built into our core. He created us with an ache for eternity. C.S. Lewis believed that. C.S. Lewis wrote about something that he called the inconsolable secret. What he meant by that was there's an ache in the human soul for something more. And the something more was put there by God to drive us to God. So we have to avoid relying too heavily on the God of the gaps And we also have to avoid the arrogance that makes us think we've got it all figured out. Um, we, 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 We don't have all of the answers. By the way, just real quick, science and religion are not in conflict. You know that, right? Science and religion are not in conflict. They're complementary. Science investigates, religion interprets. In real general terms, science explains the what and the how Religion and philosophy explain the who and the why. So science deals with facts, religion deals with values, which are every bit as real as facts. So, number one, there's anthropological evidence to let you know that you're not crazy, unless we're all crazy. But number two, that anthropological evidence that we have came out of people's experiential evidence. Um, that. People all throughout history, they weren't just superstitious. It wasn't just, oh, I forgot to dance and it didn't rain, so God must be mad. No, they had experiences that they could only attribute to something supernatural. Um, listen, Listen to what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2. Paul claimed an experience that validated his belief in heaven. Paul said, I know a man, referring to himself, in Christ, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. The third heaven would be heaven, heaven. That would be God's heaven. The first heaven is our atmospheric heaven. The second heaven would be the supernatural realm where angels and demons function. And the third heaven would be heaven, the abode, if you will, of God. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, this man was caught up to paradise. Do you remember when Jesus was dying on the cross and a criminal was being executed beside him and the criminal said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom? What did Jesus say to him? Remember Jesus said, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. So Paul uses the exact same word that Jesus used. He said, I was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. Do you know that we have thousands of documented near-death experiences today where people report as they're dying, having their spirit leave their body, and they look down on themselves, and they can see the medical team working on them, or they can see their loved ones grieving, and it's, it's, it's crazy, but... Often these reports say they actually had an expanded understanding and they knew what was happening outside the hospital. They knew conversations that were occurring in different places. It was like a whole new realm of understanding had opened up. There are thousands of those. We have not just near-death experiences, we have death experiences. We have experiences where people died and they were dead for a while and they came back and claimed to have encountered God. And again, you don't have to believe that, but I'm just saying that's a thing. That's a part of a massive body of experiential evidence. And I know someone could say, well, listen, science explains all of that. That when the human body's dying, we see a bright light, we feel like we're being drawn to a tunnel. Uh, That's fine. Science can tell us that because science tells us what and how. But if science then goes on to say, so see, there is no God because there can't be a God because it's simply the, the body shutting down. So a belief in an afterlife is crazy. Well, then science is no longer science. Science has just stepped into the realm of philosophy and religion. And that's okay. It would just have to acknowledge that it's no longer science. Now it's philosophy and it has to argue on that philosophical plane. Are you with me? So um, it's, it's more than fairy tale. It's more than myth. There are... Millions of people, there are billions of people who claim to have experienced something supernatural. An angel, a demon, God. And I'm one of them. Belief is is prevalent in our world today. Now, um, again, it doesn't prove that it's true, but it proves that experience is profound um, it's more than fairy tale. Human history is packed with reports of supernatural encounters. And, and then there's, there's the existential leg. So we have anthropological evidence. People have always believed. We have experiential evidence. People have always believed because of experiences. And then we have the existential leg of the stool. Existentialism is the, the line of thinking that deals with the self, my existence, Who am I? Why am I here? How how am I connected? Um, We human beings seem to carry, and you can just check your own heart and see if you agree with me, we carry some pretty deep existential longings. How can I find love? How can I know I'm valuable? How can I make my life count? Why do I always want something more than what I can seem to possess? How do I know where I'm supposed to go in life? those aches and longings seem to be pretty consistent to the human experience. And a person does not have to believe what the Bible says about God in heaven, but a person does have to admit the Bible answers those questions. You you might not believe the answer, but the Bible gives a pretty amazing answer to those questions. And since it seems that the existential ache is consistent in humanity, we have to answer that question. So, if a person wants to take the Bible and set it aside and say there is no God, that's fine, but they still have to answer the question. And if they're gonna be responsible, they're gonna to have to say something like, No, you don't really want to be loved, that's just an impulse. You, you don't really care about being significant, that, that's just your DNA talking to you. You don't really, um, you don't really uh, matter in life. There's no point to life. Or, or some people would say, why are you even talking about this? This is ridiculous. This is too deep. There's no point. Let's just get on with the party. And I'm not being critical of those perspectives. I'm just saying that, that humans carry existential aches, and we have to answer them. See, I don't think people frame it up exactly this way. But humans are wondering about origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. How did I get here? Why am I here? How do I make sense of my life? And what happens when I die? And whether we frame it up so technically or not, we have those questions. The Bible says you long to be loved because you are loved. The Bible says you ache to be significant because God views you with an inestimable value. The Bible says that that we long for the world to be better because it's supposed to be better. Again, none of this proves it's real, but what it does is it's evidence that lets us know we're not crazy. People have always believed. They've always believed based on experiences, and that belief and that experience has helped answer the existential questions of life. And, And... And then here's our biggest piece of evidence, and I'll start wrapping up with this. By far, this is our biggest piece of evidence. Jesus believed in heaven. If you're going to believe in Jesus, and by the way, there is a massive argument to be made for the legitimacy of Jesus Christ. So if you're going to believe in Jesus, you have to believe in heaven because Jesus talked about heaven more than anyone else. There's no one in the Bible that talked about heaven and eternity more than Jesus, So if we believe in him, we have to take it further and believe in what he believed, which was heaven. So I have one point today, and I'll give it to you here at the end. When Jesus draws near, heaven draws near. When Jesus draws near, heaven draws near. So what happened at the birth of Jesus? We read about it during the Advent reading today. When Jesus was born, angels announced his birth. So angels broke through from the second heaven into our first heaven atmosphere, and heaven literally came closer and announced his birth. There were tons of humans who predicted the coming of the Messiah. But when he was actually born, heaven showed up to announce it. In like, fact, Listen to such a fascinating verse. Um, when Jesus called uh, Nathanael to be his follower in John chapter 1, if you have your Bible, you could turn to John 1, 47, Jesus has an amazing conversation with Nathanael. John 1, 47 says, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he said to him, here indeed is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael asked, how do you know me, Lord? And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And that blows Nathanael's mind away because Jesus wasn't there when he was sitting under the fig tree. So Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of heaven. And Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree, you will see greater things than that. And then he added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. So Jesus was referencing Jacob's ladder from the Old Testament. He said, "Nathaniel, I'm Jacob's ladder. There is angelic activity circling around me right now. I'm the gateway to heaven. In fact, in John um, 10, 9, Jesus actually says that. In John 10:9, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. So Jesus believed that somehow heaven was connected to him. And when he came near, angels came near and the supernatural came near. And when we drew close, draw close to him, we're actually stepping through a door that introduces us to a whole new reality. In fact, I think by far the best description of eternity in the Bible comes from John 17 verse 3. Jesus is praying And he prays these words to God the Father. He says, now this is eternal life. And we call eternal life heaven. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life, what we call heaven, is not something that begins in the afterlife. Now it is there. But it's also here because it's here through our connection with Jesus. Please hear this. Heaven is less about a place, even though it is a place. In fact, next Sunday, I'm going to do a a frequently asked questions about heaven. And I'm going to throw as many thoughts at you as you'll let me in about 30 minutes about what is it like? What does the Bible say it's like? It's going to be a great message next Sunday. But even though I'm going to talk about what the place is like, heaven is less about a place and it's more about a person. And what this means is, no, you haven't been there yet, but you kind of have. You've kind of touched heaven before. You've, you've previewed it. You've sampled it. Let me ask you a question. How many of you would say that at some point in your life, you have felt the presence of God? We throw that term around a lot in church. We feel his presence. I hope that you have felt it recently and frequently. How many of you would say that again? You feel like you have felt God's presence. If I were to pass a microphone around and ask you to describe what that feeling is like, you would probably say, when I feel God's presence, it feels like home. It feels like peace, like hope, like perspective. It feels kind of warm. In fact, it makes me emotional on a deep level. I'm not sad, but I just get a little bit weepy. I get a little bit misty-eyed. Do you you experience that when you feel God's presence? It, it, It reorients me on the inside. It gives me perspective. It lifts me. So think about that. Think about that experience. That experience is a touch. It's a moment that you touch, maybe in prayer, maybe in scripture, maybe in worship, maybe in community, take that touch and all of the adjectives we would attach to it and then multiply that out to a face-to-face encounter that's never ending. That's heaven. That's why we say in heaven, tears are dried because when God touches us, everything's okay. That's why we say in heaven, everything is made new because when God's presence touches you, you feel like, okay, I've got fresh grace. We've already been to heaven. It's kind of like eating dinner at downtown Disney. You ever had dinner in downtown Disney? It's, you're, you're kind of in Disneyland. You're not, but you kind of are. And you haven't gone all the way in, and you haven't experienced all of the rides, but you kind of get the feel and the touch, and it's kind of like, it's kind of like um, we're there. In this life, Paul said that we get a taste He said, our vision is kind of like we're looking into a mirror that's been fogged up after a hot shower. In this life, we see in part, we know in part, but there is a day coming when we will see clearly and we will know fully, even as we have been fully known. And you know what? Let me end with this. Do you know what that touch is? There's another way of looking at that. Do you know what the Bible says that is? That's earnest money. Any of you ever bought a house? If you have anything to do with buying homes or real estate, you know that when you buy a house, you have to put down something that we call earnest money, right? Earnest money means that when I want to buy this house, I have to do more than sign my signature promising, hey, that's a pretty good signature, um, promising, I have a very bad signature, but that looked good in the air, Um, but, but I have to do more than promise to pay. I have to put some money down on the spot. And what does my earnest money do? My earnest money guarantees my interest and my right to the property. Now, hold that thought in your mind and let me read a verse from Ephesians 1, verse 13. It'll be on the screens. Paul said, but you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. You were stamped by him, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit in you is God's earnest money. God has put down a deposit guaranteeing that you have an inheritance with him that you touch today but will last forever in heaven. So whenever you feel home, warm, healing, peace, life, all of those things, God is saying, I love you, but he's also saying, there's more. This is a taste. This is a preview. This is earnest money of the real and the full that's coming. And then final passage. Let me read some of Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 9, and then I'm going to pray for you and I'll let you go. Peter writes, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance. And remember, the spirit of God in you is earnest money guaranteeing your inheritance. He's given us a living hope into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all of this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, you have had to have grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of much greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And then listen to this verse. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls.